A federal appeals court has ruled that Donald Trump can indeed face trial on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election and that he is not immune from prosecution as he had claimed. Trump says he will appeal. The case against Trump and where it goes next coming up on this Tuesday, February 6th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. In Gaza, Hamas is responding to a ceasefire proposal in a generally positive way, mediators say, but there are still major sticking points. The U.S. Justice Department has announced charges against 70 current and former employees of New York City's massive public housing authority, the most federal bribery charges ever brought in a single day. And we remember country music star Toby Keith, who topped the charts with a string of hits. He has died of stomach cancer at the age of 62. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A federal appeals court has ruled former President Donald Trump is not immune from federal prosecution for actions taken while in office. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the unanimous ruling from a three-judge panel is a major legal setback for Trump. The long-awaited ruling from the three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals says that for the purposes of this criminal case, Trump does not enjoy broad immunity from prosecution. No longer in office, Trump is now citizen Trump, the judges say, with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant. The court says that any immunity that may have protected Trump when he was president, quote, no longer protects him against this prosecution. Trump faces four counts in the case brought by Justice Department Special Counsel Jack Smith in connection with Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump has signaled that he will appeal today's ruling. His legal challenges to his prosecution have succeeded so far in delaying his criminal trial. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. A Michigan jury's found Jennifer Crumley guilty of involuntary manslaughter in connection with the 2021 school shooting committed by her son, the first conviction of its kind in the United States. On count one of involuntary manslaughter as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Crumbly was found guilty on a total of four counts for the 14s killed. Her husband has yet to stand trial on similar charges. Their son, Ethan, is serving a life sentence. Qatari negotiators say Hamas responded in a positive manner to a ceasefire proposal in Gaza in return for hostage release. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was there when the announcement was made as he engages in shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East. But Israel has said it opposes Hamas's demands for a permanent truce and a full Israeli military withdrawal from Gaza. Israel waged war in Gaza after Hamas militants carried out a multi-pronged attack in southern Israel last October. President Biden is urging Republicans in Congress to back a bipartisan border deal that also provides foreign aid for Israel and Ukraine. NPR's Ahmed reports Republicans in Congress are already lining up to sink the bill. Biden flatly blamed Donald Trump for the bill's potential failure. He said the former president thinks it's bad for him politically, and so he's trying to intimidate Republicans to vote against it. Republicans have to decide who do they serve, Donald Trump or the American people? Are they here to solve problems? or just weaponize those problems for political purposes. Biden is calling on Republicans to, quote, show some spine and do what they know is right. The bill would provide additional funding for border agents and asylum seekers, and he pointed out it has support from the Border Patrol. Asma Khalid, NPR News. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up 141 points. You're listening to 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Most restaurants in the north end of Boston will not be able to take part in the upcoming outdoor dining season. That season runs May 1st through the end of October. Here's WBUR's Fausto Menard. In most city neighborhoods, restaurants with enough outdoor space will be allowed to set up tables on adjacent sidewalks and streets, but not in the north end. City Councilor Gabriella Coletta represents the neighborhood, which she says has very unique infrastructure challenges. It's one square mile. We have very small sidewalks, very small streets, and this can't really easily accommodate outdoor dining. Some exceptions could be made for restaurants with enough sidewalk space. The city is also working to craft neighborhood-specific guidelines, such as weekend-only on-street dining, that could allow more neighborhood restaurants to offer El Fresco dining in the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The city of Boston will extend the free fare pilot program on three busy bus routes for another two years. Mayor Michelle Wu said today that routes 23, 28, and 29 will be free for riders until March of 2026. The routes run through Mattapan, Dorchester, and Roxbury. The free fare program had been slated to end this month. The mayor says the city will continue to use pandemic relief funds to pay for the buses, which cost $350,000 a month. The New Hampshire Attorney General says his office has identified the source of the AI-generated robocalls of President Biden. The calls told people not to vote in last month's primary. Attorney General John Formilla says the calls were generated by Texas-based Life Corporation and its owner, Walter Monk. He says Lingo Telecom, also of Texas, was identified as a service provider. We're certainly going to do everything we can to identify whoever would have paid to place these calls. Um, we're not at a point where we can say whether this was just Life Corp acting on its own or whether someone else was involved, but we're going to work as hard as we can to find out. The New Hampshire Election Law Unit is issuing a cease and desist order to Life Corp for violating state law dealing with voter suppression. New Hampshire says it may take additional action. In the forecast, clouds on the increase through the evening tonight and overnight, eventually turning clear, though. Temperatures about 30 degrees. Gray skies for the first part of the day, with sunshine taking over for the afternoon. A little bit milder tomorrow. Highs about 40. 37 degrees in Boston at 407. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, D.C. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Coming up, we remember country star Toby Keith. The singer died yesterday in his home state of Oklahoma. That's in a few minutes. First, a federal appeals court has ruled that former President Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The unanimous ruling marks a major victory for special counsel Jack Smith. And NPR justice correspondent Kerry Johnson is here to talk about the case. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. What did the three judges on the D.C. Circuit panel say in their ruling today? They say Trump does not enjoy absolute immunity from federal prosecution. And for the purposes of this criminal case, they wrote former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant. The court said it would be a striking paradox if the president who has a special constitutional duty to make sure that the laws are executed faithfully were the only person 
capable of defying those laws with impunity. And the judges wrote, we can't accept the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. They said they said that would collapse the system of the separation of powers. That is strong language in a unanimous opinion. And it's the first time an appeals court has been asked to weigh in on a claim of absolute immunity by a former president. What else stands out to you in the ruling? These judges pretty soundly rejected all of Donald Trump's claims. They talked about an overriding interest in accountability outweighing his claims about baseless prosecutions and lawsuits. And they wrote former President Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power despite losing the 2020 election were, if proven, an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. The court said really the most fundamental check on executive power belongs to voters and Trump should not be Uh, able to violate their will. They also wrote the prospect of criminal liability might help, help keep future presidents in line. Just for context, there are so many cases involving Trump right now. Remind us how we got to this one, this opinion today. Yeah, in this case, in D.C., Trump faces four federal charges for attempting to stay in office after he lost the 2020 election to Joe Biden. Prosecutors say those steps culminated in violence at the Capitol three years ago that injured 140 police officers. Trump has pleaded not guilty to those charges. And his lawyers argued before the appeals court last month that Trump deserved broad immunity because his actions were official ones. He took as president, and he was simply raising questions about the integrity of the election. But prosecutors said Trump's legal arguments would actually undermine democracy and give presidents a license to commit crimes while in the White House. Today's ruling is not the end of the story. What happens next? Trump has until Monday to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he would need a majority of the nine justices to pause or stay the case at this stage. If the Supreme Court refuses to pause the case, it's going to pretty quickly return to Judge Tanya Chutkin. She recently wiped away the March 4th trial date, but we know she wants to move very quickly without additional appeals or delays. This case could go to trial in late, late spring or summer. And once again, Trump's legal problem Problems could be running up against the political calendar. How do these two align? You know, Trump is the front runner for the Republican nomination and the national convention is set for July. We also have a new data point from a poll to be released tomorrow by NPR, PBS NewsHour and Marist. Two thirds of the people polled say Trump should not have immunity for actions taken while president. But nearly three quarters of Republicans say he should have immunity. Hmm. Any response from the former president today? Trump has promised to appeal. His campaign spokesman says without complete immunity, a president would not be able to properly function. And other presidents who leave office are going to be indicted immediately, he says, by the opposing party. Trump also sent out a fundraising pitch shortly after the appeals court ruling, calling it a witch hunt, which we've heard so many times before from him. Is this decision likely to affect the other cases uh, prosecuting him? It's not clear if this D.C. trial over the 2020 election will remain first in line or whether cases in New York, uh, a case in New York might uh, leapfrog. We've also got that prosecution in Florida over classified documents and the Fulton County, Georgia case, which is uh, kind of mucked up now in how to handle some motions to disqualify the prosecutor. NPR's Kerry Johnson, thanks for your reporting. My pleasure. In a Michigan courtroom today, a jury foreman announced a verdict in a trial of a mother charged with involuntary manslaughter as a result of the murderous action of her son. On count one of involuntary manslaughter, as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. The jury found that Jennifer Crumbly was criminally responsible for her son killing four students and wounding seven other people at Oxford High School in November 2021. 
Crumbly and her husband James were each charged with involuntary manslaughter and are being tried separately. Quinn Kleinfelter with member station WDET is following the case and is with us. Hi, Quinn. Quinn, do we have... Hello. Hi, Quinn. I think we have a little delay. Quinn, this is a case that many experts... Quinn, can you hear us? I think we can hear you. Hello. Quinn, we hear you. We are going to try to get Quinn and make sure he's connecting. We clearly can hear him, and he seems not to be able to hear us. We'll go to another uh, story. While we try to get while we try to get Quinn back on the line, we'll, we'll move on to our next story, which is that country star Toby Keith has died at the age of 62. The singer announced in 2022 that he was undergoing treatment for stomach cancer. NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento has this remembrance. Toby Keith fell in love with music while working at his grandmother's Arkansas Supper Club, where he'd sometimes join bands on stage. After years of playing in a group called Easy Money Band in the 1980s, Keith's solo debut single, Should Have Been a Cowboy, put him on the map in 1993. In a video he recently shared on X, Keith recounted how the song came to him while watching one of his hunting buddies try to win over a girl at a bar. His name was John, and he jumped up his hunting clothes and ran over to grab this cowgirl to dance. She turned him down, and on the way back to the table, we were laughing at some one of the guys hollered, John, you should have been a cowboy. So I thought, I'm going to write that. I might have had a sidekick with a funny name Running wild through the hills chasing Jesse James The song climbed to number one on the country charts. Throughout the next two decades, Keith had a slew of hits, including Beer for My Horses, a duet with Willie Nelson. We'll raise up our glasses against evil forces singing Whiskey for my men, beer for my horses and American Soldier. I'm an American soldier, an American. Pop Culture Happy Hour host Stephen Thompson says Keith's influence in country music over the last three decades has left an immeasurable mark on the genre. He made music with an eye toward the hugest possible audience, and I think he expressed sentiments with an eye toward the universal. Into the 2000s, Keith's songs became more political. His 2002 hit, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, responded to the 9-11 attacks. And stoked a feud with the then Dixie Chicks about the invasion of Iraq. Stephen Thompson again. He got more politically outspoken, and still his own politics weren't always that easy to pin down. In 2015, Keith was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He continued to perform even while in treatment for stomach cancer. Toby Keith died in his home state of Oklahoma. He's survived by his wife, three children, and four grandchildren. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News. And now let's return to Quinn Kleinfelter, who I think we have on the line successfully, about a case, a verdict in Michigan today, in which a parent was held legally responsible for the criminal actions of their child. Quinn, are you with us? I am. What was it like in the courtroom and the reaction when Jennifer Crumbly, uh, the mother, was announced that was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter? It was a pretty packed courtroom. Family members of the victims were there. There didn't seem to be anybody on hand for Jennifer Crumbly, just as there has not been throughout the trial. When she came in, she didn't show much emotion, although she and her attorney did seem a bit tense. She kept putting on chapstick. She kept her head down. 
It was different for the family members. They shook hands and hugged the prosecutors when the verdict came. This mass shooting committed by her son occurred when her son Ethan was 15. He's since been sentenced to life in prison. Prosecutors had argued that Jennifer Crumbly ignored her son's mental health. What evidence did they show for that? Well, prosecutors used texts, uh, Facebook messages, and journal entries. They said Crumbly's son was hallucinating, seeing things flying in their home, and that his parents were ignoring his pleas to see a doctor. The defense claimed Jennifer Crumbly never saw those messages. But throughout the trial, the prosecution painted Crumbly as someone who was more interested in her horses or her own affairs than how her son was doing. And prosecutor Karen McDonald said Crumbly's own testimony underlined her point uh, when she said that her son's actions had ruined so many lives, including her own. And she was asked the question, you lost everything. She said, yes. She hasn't lost everything, ladies and gentlemen. Her son is still alive. Quinn prosecutors presented several witnesses, but the defense presented just one, Jennifer Crumbly herself, who testified on her own behalf. Was it a surprise that she was the only defense witness, and what did she have to say? It was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, she said she had no idea that her son was as troubled as he was that she didn't take him home from school the day of the shooting because counselors there assured her that he was not an immediate threat to anyone. And her attorney, Shannon Smith, argued the prosecution was wrong when it claimed Crumbly didn't know about a gun and kept it securely locked away from her son, a gun that the parents had bought him just days before the shooting as an early Christmas present. No parent would purchase a weapon if they believed their child had mental illnesses. Quinn, why are the parents being tried separately? because they requested it. Uh, their attorneys said some new evidence had come up that could pit the parents against each other, evidence that apparently involves who was responsible for keeping the gun secure and away from their son. In fact, this verdict could have big implications for the husband, James Crumbly's trial. And the His mother... trial's set for next month. He faces identical charges. And what kind of sentence could the mother, Jennifer Crumbly, get? Involuntary manslaughter carries a penalty of as much as 15 years in prison. That is WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the effort by House Republicans to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas ran into a math problem earlier today. Speaker Mike Johnson acknowledged there may not be enough votes from the GOP. That story and much more still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy. Heat pump water heater replacements, same day or next day services. Learn how you can heat smart this winter at GoEndlessEnergy.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. The Dow rose nearly four-tenths of a percent today. S&P grew by nearly a quarter of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained under a tenth of a percent. J.P. Morgan Chase plans to nearly double its number of banks in Massachusetts. The New York-based company said today it plans to add more than 50 locations over the next three years. They'll include spots in South Boston, Brighton, New Bedford, and Waltham. The Boston Globe reports Chase will hire about 500 more people. The forecast is ahead. 
WBUR supporters include Showcase Cinemas and the Museum of African American History. With a screening of Harriet and discussion with historian Kelly Carter Jackson, ShowcaseCinemas.com. A dozen stunning long-stemmed red roses. How about two dozen? Send the perfect gift to your Valentine and support WBUR at WBUR.org. Some clouds around tonight, a few snow flurries before midnight, temperatures around 30 degrees. Tomorrow should start up with clouds, but they should dissipate by the afternoon, letting the sun shine in. Temperatures around 40 degrees. A sunny day ahead for Thursday, just above 40 and then turning milder through the rest of the week. This is 90.9 WBUR, 37 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you are interested in getting no sleep whatsoever tonight, have I got a book for you. The opening sentence of Night Watching by Tracy Sierra reads, There was someone in the house. And the tale that unfolds from there pretty much guarantees you will stay up, as I did, way past bedtime, tearing through pages to find out what happens, or you'll be too petrified to sleep, or maybe both. Tracy Sierra, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. I'm so excited. Um, I want you to set the scene. Just describe for us what is happening as that first sentence of the novel uh, plays out. There was someone in the house. This is There's a woman. She's home alone with her young children. And then? Yes, that's right. Um, Woman is home alone at night with her young kids, and she sees a figure coming up her stairs and um, has all that fear we all do when you hear a bump in the night, hopes it's not real, but it is all too real. And it is up to her to find a way to protect her little family and... um, figure out exactly what to do as it becomes increasingly clear that this is no ordinary home invasion. I mean, just hearing you describe seeing this figure coming up the stairs, it sends chills through me. I saw where you have described that situation as a as a primal, as a universal fear, you know, the idea of an intruder in your home who wants to harm you and people you love. Um, it's my worst nightmare. Is it yours? Certainly. I mean, I think that is the basis for the whole book is my own sort of fear and anxiety and um, wanting to kind of poke at that idea. I think scary stories can be remarkably cathartic, and they certainly are for me when telling them. Yeah. You never name the woman, your protagonist, your heroine. And I wondered, is that intentional? Are you signaling this could be any of us? Like, this could be you. I did that for kind of of two reasons. Um, It adds to the unsettling nature, I think. It kind of makes you question who each of these people are, how you define someone at all, while also being oddly easier to step into their shoes. She doesn't, the the mother doesn't have 
any great choices when this man who's not supposed to be in her house is in her house in the middle of the night. She does have the very basic one. Do you run? Do you hide? Do you stay and try to fight? Tell us a little bit more about her. Like, what do we need to know about her to understand why she makes the choice she does? I think she is about as far from an action hero as you can get in many ways. Um, She knows immediately uh, that fighting in any sort of physical way, she's going to lose. That is off the table. And the uh, story takes place during a um, blizzard. And the idea of being able to somehow escape out of the house when, you know, you have small children and there's snow on the ground, very difficult. And I think one thing that she's dismayed in herself is that her first reaction is kind of to freeze um, and how you deal with your own sort of physical response to fear is, I think, a really interesting thing and kind of different in every different emergency situation. So, yet she has to figure out how to hide because that's really the only option left to her. And tell us where she hides. So the the setting of the house is based on my own 300-year-old home here in New England. And um, like a lot of antique homes, actually, and there are a lot of them in New England, there are secret spaces in the house. Um, We certainly have some in ours. And we also have, just like the um, house in the novel, a secret room behind uh, the fireplace. And so she takes refuge in that secret room, which, you know, is uh, not exactly a hospitable place. <laughs> it's tiny, it's dusty, it's cold, yeah, it's, yeah. Right, it is. But in a way, her smallness and, and the size of her children becomes a strength in that way, kind of paradoxically. Um, you know, she can't fight, but she is certainly able to hide a little easier than she might be if she were larger. And you said this is, you have a room like this in your own house in New England? Yes, yes, we do. We do. There's all kinds of really interesting and fun, you know, little secret spaces. We have sort of hidey holes under floorboards and the like. And um, when we were looking at houses, I I know we're not alone in this because we saw other old homes with very similar things and all kinds of theories about the secret room. Um, And I kind of poke at that a little bit in the in the book as well, the way that um, people are kind of fascinated by that and just sort of love spinning stories around it. And is that part of what inspired this whole story? Is you looking at your own secret room in your own house and thinking, why would you go in there? Like, why would you build it? What would you use it for? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, much like the, the husband and wife in the novel, my husband and I cleaned out that space and kind of theorizing and everyone we had work in the house has has their own theory, you know, the the family we bought the home from, the the kids were convinced it was haunted. These these old spaces kind of accumulate theories and and legends and it's really interesting cuz you'll never know the truth for for sure um or or how it was used in the past, right? And I think that's just a really sort of fun and interesting thing about um old homes and secret spaces. While we're on the subject of the house, it's it is a very old, centuries-old house in New England in the novel. It's almost a character in its own right. It's got so much personality and it's making all these noises that are that are informing the action. Tell us a little more about that. Sure. I think um, 
any parent of small children becomes very aware of every little creak and echo in their house because you're putting a, you know, a baby down to sleep. You're in big trouble if that door creaks and wakes them up. Oh, yeah. And certainly in our house, uh, I learned where to walk, where not to, what squeaks, what doesn't. And um, I wrote the, the novel, uh, much of it during uh, COVID lockdowns. And it was at this time where obviously our, our homes were a refuge, but also extremely confining. And it got me thinking a lot about sort of the traditional role of home for women as sort of the, the sphere, but also, again, confining and how I really wanted to sort of turn that sort of knowledge of this creaky house into an asset for her, right? She knows this space. She knows where this man is in the house because she can hear him. She knows that noise of that floorboard, the creak of that wardrobe, all those sort of characteristic things that that you learn <laughs> as a parent and just living in a place. Have you ever had occasion to use your secret room? No, we have not. We have not. And I hope I never need to <laughs> for this, Me too. this reason, for sure. <laughs> Tracy Sierra, thank you. Thank you so much. Her debut novel is titled Night Watching. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. Health advocates say the federal government is no longer giving long COVID the urgency attention it deserves. So private donors are now funding research that's generating a high level of collaboration. That story coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. The Bruins get back on the ice tonight after the NHL All-Star break. The Bees will host the Calgary Flames. Face-off is at 7 o'clock tonight. In the forecast, clouds increasing through the evening, about 30 degrees overnight. For tomorrow, we should have gray skies for the first part of the day with sunshine in the afternoon, a little bit milder, highs about 40 degrees. It's 430. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead as Conductor Laureate February 23rd and 25th at Symphony Hall. Visit handelandhaydn.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices. They include a Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The presidential primary campaign has headed west to Nevada this week, where dueling caucuses and primaries are creating a bit of confusion among voters. That's because there are two nominating contests in Nevada. Today's primary, which Republican Nikki Haley is on the ballot for. And then there's Thursday's caucus, where party frontrunner Donald Trump is the only major candidate participating. 
NPR's Franco Ordonez says Republicans can vote in both the primary and caucus. Nevada actually has long held caucuses, but the state legislature passed a law in 2021 switching to a more straightforward primary vote. But the nominating contests are run by political parties and not the state. And the Nevada Republican Party decided to stick with a caucus, which awards the 26 delegates. So voters will be heading to the polls today, and Nikki Haley is almost guaranteed to win, but it's largely a symbolic victory. In a landmark decision today, a jury in Michigan has found Jennifer Crumbly guilty of involuntary manslaughter after her teenage son killed four people in a shooting at Oxford High School in 2021. Alex McLennan of member station WDET reports. After seven days of listening to witnesses and two days of deliberation, the four-person read her fellow juror's decision. On count one of involuntary manslaughter as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. It was the same verdict on counts two, three, and four, one count for each of the students killed by Ethan Crumbly. Prosecutors had argued that Ms. Crumbly was so caught up in her own affairs, she ignored the mental health of her son, showing gross negligence by buying him a gun and failing to tell school officials about the firearm when she had the chance. Jennifer Crumbly's husband, James Crumbly, will stand trial on identical charges next month. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Dozens of drivers for apps, including Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, are at the Statehouse today. They're supporting a bill to allow them to unionize. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports they're also backing a ballot question that would put the issue directly to voters in November. Drivers in blue t-shirts walked the marble halls of the State House Tuesday, handing out information packets to state legislators. Christian Florian is a Lyft driver from East Boston. He says companies like Lyft and Uber are taking a growing cut of the money that used to go to drivers. Florian hopes a union would boost his pay and help him work more regular hours. A political action group supported by Uber and Lyft says the bill would restrict drivers' flexibility and independence. Lawmakers have until tomorrow to report the bill out of committee. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. U.S. Senator Ed Markey is celebrating five years since the introduction of the Green New Deal. He spoke in Washington today about the anniversary. Markey says the effort has meant the creation of climate-friendly jobs and investments in green energy and sustainable food systems. Washington had to be braver and act more boldly than it had ever done before to fight the climate crisis. We needed a Green New Deal, a 10-year mobilization for jobs and justice and climate. Markey also highlighted the American Climate Corps, which President Biden passed last year. It will train 20,000 young people in jobs to help the planet. Actor Annette Benning is being honored at Harvard this afternoon as the Hasty Pudding Woman of the Year. The school's theatrical group cited her Oscar-nominated work in The Grifters, American Beauty, and Nyad. After this afternoon's celebration in Harvard Yard, Benning will take part in the traditional roast tonight. It's 35 degrees in Boston. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking research skills. Info sessions February 9th and 21st. Cloudy skies tonight falling to about 30 degrees. More clouds tomorrow and then sunshine should move in by the afternoon up around 40 degrees tomorrow. Then the low 40s for Thursday could reach the 50s 
by the weekend. 35 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There are some positive signs in the effort to work out an Israel-Hamas ceasefire. After a week without a response from Hamas, the group now says it views the ceasefire proposal in a positive spirit. This comes as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is crisscrossing the region trying to get everyone on the same page. NPR's Greg Myrie joins us with the latest from Tel Aviv. Hey, Greg. Hi, Ari. What more can you tell us about the Hamas response? So it does have this positive tone, and the group expressed its general position without giving details. Now, Hamas wants an extended ceasefire. We're talking several weeks or more, and it's pushing for a permanent end to the war and a withdrawal of Israeli troops from Gaza. It also wants the release of a large number of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel, which is holding thousands of them, and Hamas, in addition, wants a substantial increase in the aid flowing into Gaza. How does that compare to Israel's stance? Well, there are some differences. Um, Israel appears open to a temporary ceasefire, but probably not for as long as Hamas seeks. Israel's concern is that if it uh, halts military operations in Gaza for an extended period, it may be hard to start up again. And Israel flat out rejects the notion it should pull its troops out of Gaza at this stage. Now, Hamas is holding 136 Israelis, and the Israeli government is under a lot of domestic pressure to get as many freed uh, as soon as it can. Now, realistically, in the near term, the Israelis could perhaps get back some civilians being held by Hamas, perhaps a few dozen. But it's highly unlikely Hamas will hand over Israeli soldiers at this stage. What about Secretary of State Blinken? What is he saying about prospects for a deal? Right. So he's been uh, going all over the region the past couple of days. He was in Qatar today. Uh, Qatar is very significant. It's helped put together this ceasefire proposal. And here's what Blinken had to say in the Qatar capital, Doha. The best path forward, the most effective path forward right now, to get an extended period of calm and to work toward an end to the conflict is through an agreement on the hostages. And that's what we're intensely focused on. So Blinken is spending tonight in Israel, and he meets with Israeli leaders Wednesday. And this should really give us a better sense of how close or how far apart Israel and Hamas are. And we should just note that negotiating with Hamas is a cumbersome process. Hamas has leaders in exile and leaders in Gaza who are hiding in the tunnels. So it it takes days uh, for the collective Hamas leadership to come up with a unified response. And, And therefore, working out the details is going to take time, um, even if it works out at all. And finally, what's the state of the fighting in Gaza? 
Yeah, Ari, the main battleground continues to be in and around the southern Gaza city of Han Yunus. Israel says it's effectively defeated Hamas there, and it's a real Hamas stronghold. But some small groups of Hamas fighters are, are still putting up some fairly uh, significant resistance. Now, Israel says it's already planning to launch a ground operation several miles further to the south in Rafah. This is the town at the southern end of Gaza on the border with Egypt. And Israeli troops, as they've advanced north to south in Gaza, have pushed more than a million Palestinian civilians, uh, and, and they've all been squeezed into this area in and around Rafah. So if the Israelis do carry out a big operation, it certainly raises the prospect of extremely high casualties, and it adds an urgency to these efforts to reach a ceasefire. That's NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Sure thing, Ari. The U.S. has a record number of migrants arriving at its southern border. Meanwhile, President Biden is facing low approval numbers and eager to get a border security deal done. So Senator Mitch McConnell insisted last month that this is the right moment to get conservative priorities into a border agreement. Those negotiations had been led by Republican James Lankford. If we had a 100 percent Republican government, President, House, Senate, we probably would not be able to get a single Democratic vote to pass what Senator Langford and the administration are trying to get together on. But now that bipartisan proposal is out. And McConnell says there is no chance to make it law that Republican support has evaporated. NPR's Eric McDaniel has been following this from the Capitol and joins us now. Hi, Eric. Hey, good to be here. Good to have you. How did this fall apart? Look, it's a great question. And I just want to be really clear here, right? It's not that Republicans are saying there's no need for border reform, just that well, now they won't back this bipartisan deal. As conservatives are quick to point out, last year there were more than 3 million migrants who arrived at the border and presented themselves to or at least encountered border protection agents. These folks are primarily fleeing poverty, right? But that doesn't automatically meet the threshold for asylum under U.S. law. But all those claims still have to be processed, and the system is just not set up to handle so many requests. And this bipartisan proposal addresses a lot of that. That's why the Border Patrol Union supports it, the Republican-aligned Chamber of Commerce supports it, the Wall Street Journal editorial board. But things really started to come apart when it became clear that GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump, he doesn't support it. And so Republicans quickly followed his lead. Here's McConnell this afternoon sounding very different than he did in that clip you heard from a month ago. It looks to me and to most of our members as if we have no real chance here to make a law. So does this opposition come down to presidential politics? Yes. I mean, in short, yes. There are absolutely some folks who are never going to support a compromise for various and very real policy reasons. And that's true for some Democrats, too. But here, after months of GOP leaders decrying Biden's handling of the border, pushing for this bipartisan deal, the text came out on Sunday and basically immediately you've got a member of that Senate Republican leadership, John Barrasso, the number three Senate Republican, saying he opposes the deal, that Biden would never enforce the legislation and that, quote, Americans will turn to the upcoming election to end the border crisis. Top Democratic negotiator Chris Murphy of Connecticut is hopping mad. He said it's a sign that Republicans are now enthralled to Donald Trump and President Biden said he'd make Republicans' reversal on this bill a key campaign issue. Eric, this deal was also the vehicle for aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel. Is that aid now over, too? 
I mean, it's possible it could be repackaged in a standalone bill. And I should say that's something Democrats wanted in the first place. It was the GOP that insisted these issues be linked to the border. And now Republicans are signaling they could be open to that original proposal. But who knows? I could also see it being tied to government funding coming up in March. A parallel thing going on is that the House of Representatives could move forward on the first impeachment vote of a member of the cabinet in 150 years. This is Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who oversees the border. But that's now looking uncertain. Why is that? Look, Republicans in the House have been insistent that Mayorkas's handling of the border has been unacceptable. They say he's been ignoring law. But whether that meets the standards of high crimes and misdemeanors is a different question. Speaker Mike Johnson appears to be doing the math here and between the two Republican House members who've said publicly they oppose the deal, folks who may have expressed concerns private, pr- privately in any absences, they might not have the votes they need to seal the deal tonight. And there are a lot of doubts about the impeachment push overall. Even Mayorkas's predecessor in the job, Jay Johnson, who served under Trump, said in a letter that House Republicans should move on from this impeachment process, which he called groundless, and take up the Senate bipartisan immigration proposal that now seems dead. NPR's Eric McDaniel, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today's the last day for voters in Nevada to cast their ballots in the state's Republican and Democratic primary. President Biden, who was in the state this past weekend, is expected to win the Democratic primary. And former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is the only major candidate still running in the state-run GOP primary, which is mostly because former President Donald Trump is not on the ballot. NPR's Ashley Lopez is in Las Vegas and with us now to explain what's going on. Hey, Ashley. Hey there. First, why are there both primaries and a separate caucus this week? Well, the reason that there's like this whole other election is because the state Republican Party doesn't like some changes that were made to Nevada's elections back in 2021. They don't like that the state expanded mail voting and they don't like that the state moved away from using caucuses, which are the most restrictive ways to vote because they require voters to show up in person at a specific place and at a specific time. But they decided to have a caucus anyway? Yeah, that's right. I mean, because of a legal back and forth and some influence from the Trump campaign, the Nevada GOP just like decided to do their own thing. And even though Trump and Texas businessman Ryan Binkley are the only candidates partaking in the caucus on Thursday, the caucus in many ways is the more important Republican presidential contest because it decides how delegates are divvied up. And Trump is expected to win all those delegates. Uh, I imagine uh, voters or, you know, anyone who's not super plugged into what's going on could be pretty confused confused by this. What have you heard from people you've talked to? Well, Republican voters I've talked to are very confused and either annoyed or pretty frustrated. I talked to some Trump supporters today at a polling site in the Spring Valley neighborhood of Las Vegas. One of those voters, Pat Rapaccio, said she voted in the Republican primary and ended up voting for none of the candidates, which is an option for primary voters in Nevada, I should say. And that's because she said she was expecting to see Trump on the ballot. I came for Trump, period. He wasn't up there. I'm here today in the rain, and I'm disappointed. Rapagelo says she's going to vote in the caucus, however, because Republican voters can 
both vote in the primary and the caucus. But I will say the Nevada Secretary of State's office told me they have been getting a lot of calls from confused Trump voters pretty much throughout this entire election. And state and local election officials say they they've just been like directing people to the state party's website because that's really all they can do. Well, while Republicans are figuring things out, it's easy to forget that Democrats are also voting today. So what did you yeah. hear from voters casting ballots in the other primary? Most of the Democratic voters said they voted for President Biden, some with more gusto than others. But I also heard say, uh, some Democrats say they ended up voting for none of the candidates because they just like aren't happy with Biden and don't really like alternative, uh, the alternatives either. I talked to Todd McCann. He voted for President Biden at the Stupac Community Center, which is near the Las Vegas Strip. And he says he's also not super into his options during this election. Uh, you know, I wished it was another candidate. I, I think he's probably too old, but uh, out of what's out there, um, there's no other choice. I will say that this is what I heard from people who were voting in person at the polls today. And it's worth noting that the biggest share of voters will likely be from people who voted by mail in Nevada. It's NPR's Ashley Lopez reporting from Las Vegas. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, the Supreme Court hears oral arguments on whether Donald Trump can be excluded from the ballot because of his role in the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. Live coverage of the arguments begins Thursday at 10, right here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeast and Mass, where since 1965 their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. MaplewoodYearRound.com. Coming to City Space Friday, February 16th, a Valentine's Day edition of the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who went through it. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Clouds tonight down around 30 degrees. Tomorrow, look for clouds early sunshine later on, up around 40 degrees. The time is 449. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When the Japanese pufferfish wants to find a mate, it sets out to impress with all it has, its fins and a sandy ocean floor. And over several days and nights without sleep, it carves the most incredible, symmetrical sculpture in the sand, a huge circular array of ridges, troughs, peaks and valleys, decorated with perfectly placed shells scavenged from the seabed. It's beautiful, not just to a pufferfish, but to our eyes too. And why does it create this thing of beauty? It just knows it's what it needs to do for love. Fortunately, it's so much easier for you to create something beautiful. Send your Valentine Winston Flowers from WBUR, and in doing so, you'll create stories that enrich and inspire all of us. Visit WBUR.org to get started. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Dozens of people have been arrested and charged in what federal prosecutors say was a massive cash-for-contract scam involving the New York City Housing Authority. That is the biggest public housing authority in the country. Reporter David Brand of member station WNYC is here with details. Hi, David. Hi, Sasha. What do federal prosecutors say happened here? So this morning, federal prosecutors in Manhattan announced bribery charges against 70 current and former employees of the New York City Housing Authority, which people here in New York know as NYCHA. They say it's the largest single-day bribery takedown in Justice Department history. And at a press conference in Manhattan, U.S. Attorney Damian Williams says investigators found a systemic kickback scheme. So basically, contract contractors would hand over cash for contracts at about 100 developments across the city. And this practice was going on for years, he said. As the charges show, superintendents accepting and extorting bribes from contractors had become business as usual. Williams said these employees shook down contractors for small sums, but it all added up to about $2 million in bribes. That's classic pay to play. And this culture of corruption at NYCHA ends today. He said 66 people were arrested today across several states, and all 70 are facing charges of bribery and extortion. Tell us a little about the New York City Housing Authority and whether it's had a history of problems. Well, as you mentioned, it's the biggest public housing authority in the country by far. It houses about 335,000 people. That's roughly the population of Cleveland. Uh, But for many years, it's been affected by decades of disinvestment, uh, especially on the federal level, and that's really made worse by mismanagement. So conditions can get pretty bad. There's mold, chronic heat and elevator outages, lead paint and thousands of units with kids. In fact, those problems led to a federal monitor agreement five years ago. But, you know, all that being said, the Housing Authority is still a crucial source of affordable housing in New York City. And there had been a sense that it was really turning a corner after getting commitments from city and state leaders to make improvements for tenants and some new strategies for raising money. Of course, that was all before today's news. You said this involved Housing Authority employees shaking down contractors. I assume this means they were, they were being shaked down to pay bribes to get contracting jobs? Right. So Williams, uh, the U.S. attorney, said these were pretty small jobs like plumbing, window repair, minor construction projects that they all paid less than $10,000 per contract. So that meant they weren't subject to the competitive bidding process. So building superintendents had a lot of power here. They can issue the contracts. And then what prosecutors say is that they would make contractors pay them up front or when they were done with the job and needed someone from the housing authority to sign off on the work. And that's when the staff will get their cut. You know, to be clear here, this was, you know, very low level. New York City Housing Authority administrators are not implicated. And what about the residents of these buildings? Did you get a chance to talk to any of them and hear their reaction to this news? I talked to Manuel Martinez, he's Tenant Association President at the South Jamaica Houses in Queens, and he says tenants aren't happy, but they're not surprised. He, he said this kind of con- corruption just makes it even harder for tenants to trust the agency. This opportunistic workplace culture at the expense of the residents, where people already feel that we are leveraged, and so it doesn't matter. And, you know, by extension, the residents don't matter. Our trust level has been very low. This just confirms. 
That is David. This compounds that long list of problems that we talked about earlier. That is David Brand of Member Station WNYC. Thank you. Thank you. For many patients, it can feel like progress on solving long COVID has stalled. But there are many scientists working at it, and increasingly they're relying on private funding to push their research forward, as NPR's Will Stone reports. Mysterious. It's a word that often accompanies headlines about long COVID. There's some truth here. The underlying causes are still unknown. There are no approved treatments. But Amy Proal thinks it's time to retire this adjective. We're so past the point of it being mysterious or just documenting symptoms. Proal is a microbiologist who will readily dive into the relevance of the immune response in macaque monkeys these tunneling nanotubes that might allow it to move from cell to cell. Or the nuances of collecting tissue samples. Intestinal tissue or lung tissue or lymph node tissue or tonsil tissue, whatever. Over the last few years, Proel has knit together a wide-ranging team of scientists who are trying to pinpoint the biological underpinnings of long COVID. Much of their work is centered on the hypothesis that a persistent viral infection could be driving symptoms. Their recent paper in the journal Nature Immunology on this evidence has more than 30 authors from more than half a dozen institutions. In it, they lay out key questions. What mechanisms does SARS-CoV-2 use to persist? What's the difference between persistence and people who develop long COVID symptoms versus not? Proal doesn't work for the government or a university. She runs a nonprofit called Polybio Research Foundation. It's funding much of this cutting-edge work thanks to $30 million donated by a Russian-Canadian billionaire from the world of crypto. Proal says that sounds like a lot of money, but in the big scheme... If we're really going to go into clinical trial infrastructures, we would need to get much higher numbers in there. The reliance on private funding to study long COVID underscores an uncomfortable fact that was on full display during a recent Senate hearing about long COVID when Senator Bernie Sanders put this question to a panel of scientists. I'm assuming that all of you believe that the federal government has got to play a much more active role with substantial sums of money for research, development, clinical trials, et cetera. Is that Absolutely, yes, yes. yes. No doubt. All right. <laughs> Much of the federal funding on long COVID has come in the form of a billion dollars from Congress for an initiative called Recover. It's faced criticism for not delivering more meaningful results. Dr. Michael Peluso at the University of California, San Francisco, is one of the investigators in Recover. I mean, it's enrolled over 15,000 people and the scale of it is huge, but there's never been a disease condition where a single research study has solved the problem. Peluso and others involved in Recover have voiced concern that there isn't a plan for sustained funding. John Wary at the University of Pennsylvania says the typical process for a scientist to secure federal funding can take anywhere from 15 to 30 months. But with this long COVID collaboration, he can move on this research quickly. He's looking for clues in the immune cells, something he couldn't do easily without being able to call up someone like Michael Peluso at UCSF and ask for samples. It's one of these conversations where, like, you don't have to explain the background. You don't have to convince anybody. You just say, hey, we're doing a thing, and it happens almost immediately. Over at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard, Michael Van Elzacker says this collaboration on long COVID is unlike anything else he's been a part of. I don't want to be cynical, but a lot of science is kind of publish or perish. And we're not trying to get pubs out. We're trying to get answers. You know what I mean? Like, it, it actually feels that way. Van Elzecker, who's also with Polybio Research, thinks the government should direct more energy toward long COVID. But he says it's not as simple as just demanding more money. More resources and smarter approaches aren't necessarily synonyms. He says there should be urgency and also a clear vision. Will Stone, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Kresge Foundation, established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR, 35 degrees now in Boston. It's creeping downward, should have a low of 30 overnight tonight. And for tomorrow, up around 40 degrees, morning clouds, then some afternoon sunshine. More suns ahead for Thursday, a slow climb in temperatures through the week. In fact, close to 50 degrees on Friday. It's 459. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plant, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plant, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit massgeneralbrighamhealthplan.org. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden calls on Republicans to pass a bipartisan measure that would stem the flow of migrants across the U.S. border with Mexico. It's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, to show a little spine. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, February 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullen. Some Senate Republicans oppose the bipartisan bill. We'll hear from Arizona Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema, who was one of the chief negotiators of the deal. The National Transportation Safety Board says four missing bolts led to the fuselage peeling off an Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 9 in flight. Also, 10 Little Rabbits by Maurice Sendak is being released to the public today. Coming up, how each Sendak book had a certain song to go along with it. It's 5.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is turning up the pressure on Congress to put partisan politics aside and pass legislation that would strengthen security at the southern border. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the president's urgent plea comes as a bipartisan Senate bill appears to be on the brink of collapse. Speaking at the White House, President Biden lambasted congressional Republicans for caving to pressure from former President Donald Trump and the hard right to reject the bill. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. It's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, to show a little spine. Biden also said that failing to pass the bill would be playing into the hands of Russian President Vladimir Putin. In addition to provisions that would bolster security at the border, the Senate measure includes billions of dollars in additional aid for Ukraine's war defense. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Cutter says Hamas has given a mostly positive response to a proposal for a ceasefire in Gaza and the release of Israeli hostages. Qatari Prime Minister saying he was optimistic. NPR's Daniel Estrin is more from Tel Aviv. In a press conference with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Qatar's Prime Minister announced that Hamas had some comments on the proposal, but, quote, in general, it is positive. Hamas said it had replied to the proposal, quote, in a positive spirit. Israeli officials said they were studying Hamas's reply. A main sticking point is that Hamas wants a permanent ceasefire and full Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, and Israel only agrees to a temporary ceasefire, as it says it needs more time to crush Hamas militarily. Blinken, coming from a visit to Saudi Arabia, said that country was ready to establish diplomatic ties with Israel if the Gaza war ends and there is a, quote, clear time-bound path to creating a Palestinian state. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The United Auto Workers Union says more than half of workers at a Tennessee Volkswagen plant have signed union cards. As Stephen Basaha of Gulf States Newsroom reports, it's part of the UAW's campaign to capture non-unionized auto plants. Nearly all the major auto plants and suppliers in the South are not unionized. A plant getting more than 50% of workers to sign union cards is a big milestone. It's enough the UAW can now demand recognition at the Volkswagen plant. Instead, the union's new playbook is to wait until it reaches 70%. That way, it has a comfortable majority if Volkswagen refuses to recognize the union and triggers an election instead. Reporter Stephen Basaha. Looking into an incident last month where a portion of a fuselage of an Alaska Airlines jet came off in mid-flight, the National Transportation and Safety Board has now issued a ruling. Investigators saying bolts that helped secure a panel on the plane were indeed missing before it took off. The plane safely returned to the airport. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 141 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. House is expected to vote today on whether to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. House Republicans blame him for not addressing the problems on the southern border. On the floor of the House today, Massachusetts Democratic Congressman Jim McGovern blasted Republicans, calling the impeachment process a distraction. Instead of legislating, they are being led by Marjorie Taylor Greene and the extreme MAGA chock full of nuts caucus to pursue their baseless, extreme and harmful impeachment charade that distracts from actual actually securing the border. Democrats say the impeachment attempt is essentially a dispute over immigration policies. Applications are now open for Boston's upcoming outdoor dining program. And for the second year in a row, the city's north end is largely excluded. City leaders say today the decision is based in part on the neighborhood's high foot traffic, the narrow streets, and the lack of parking. Some north end restaurants could be allowed to offer alfresco dining on sidewalks. This year's outdoor dining program will run from May 1st to October 31st. Nurses at Anna Jake's Hospital have reached a tentative contract agreement with their employer. Massachusetts Nurses Association says the agreement will improve wages, benefits, and working conditions. The agreement comes after more than six months of negotiations at the hospital in Newburyport. The 350 union members will vote on the contract over the next three weeks. A hospital spokesperson says they're pleased about the agreement. And the city of Boston kicked off its Black History Month celebrations today. Lift every voice and sing. Lift Every Voice and Sing has been dubbed the Black National Anthem. Today's event also included remarks from Reverend Art Gordon of St. John Missionary Baptist Church. As we celebrate Black History Month within this rich city, we are mindful of those who paved the way before us before we got here. Names like Reverend Thomas Paul, Prince Hall, 
Crispus Attucks and Phyllis Wheatley. The city plans to hold events including roundtable discussions, networking events and concerts all month long. In the forecast, 35 degrees now. Clouds increase through the night tonight, about 30 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, gray skies for the beginning of the day. Sunshine taking over in the afternoon should be a little bit milder. Temperatures about 40 degrees. Again, 35 now in Boston at 5.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. We've heard a lot lately about militant groups supported by Iran that have been attacking U.S. forces in the Middle East. What is Iran's connection to these groups, and how much can Iran control them? We'll be talking about that shortly. But we will start this hour at the White House, where for weeks the administration has been working with a bipartisan group of senators on a bill to try to reduce the number of migrants crossing the southern border. Now, that proposal seems to be falling apart before it's even gotten a vote. Today, President Biden urged Republicans in Congress to resurrect it. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid was in the room. Hi, Asma. Hi, Sasha. What was the president's main message today? Well, the president is trying to make a final appeal to Republicans. You know, this is a bill in which the White House made a lot of concessions to the GOP on immigration issues. But now they see Republicans lining up to oppose the bill that has the very policies that many Republicans wanted. You know, more money for border agents, more money for immigration judges and asylum officers. And ultimately, what we heard from President Biden today was that he put the blame squarely on Donald Trump. The former president, who is also, of course, the front runner for the 2020 PGOP nomination was campaigning against the bill at a recent rally. And Biden says Trump has been calling Republicans trying to intimidate them to vote against the bill because he thinks it's bad for him politically if the problems are improved and he can't campaign on it. And Biden flatly said Republicans have to show a little spine, make it clear who they work for. Republicans have to decide who do they serve, Donald Trump or the American people? Are they here to solve problems? or just weaponize those problems for political purposes. Asma, this bill also includes funding for border agents, for some border policy changes, and also money for Ukraine for its fight against Russia. What did the president have to say about that foreign aid part? Mm-hmm. You know, the, Biden said that the clock is ticking for Ukraine, that it urgently needs money to take on Russia. And he emphasized that the U.S. cannot walk away now because that is what Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, is betting on. Supporting this bill is standing up to Putin. Opposing this bill is playing into his hands. Biden emphasized that this is a critical moment and failing to support Ukraine will not be forgotten. But, Sasha, the challenge here is that there are some Republican lawmakers who have been staunchly opposed to more Ukraine aid, and the White House thought it could get this money through by tying it to something that many Republicans wanted, like border money. On one hand, the president is trying to get Republicans to revive this bill, but he, on the other hand, he also acknowledged it seems dead. Does mm-hmm. the White House have a plan B? Well, really, publicly at the moment, Sasha, I will say their main plan B seems to be blaming Republicans if this falls apart. Uh, the president is going to try to turn this into a campaign issue. And in fact, his presidential campaign was out with a message today blasting uh, the former President Donald Trump, saying that this was all his fault. Uh, On Thursday, Biden is meeting with some congressional Democrats. So I think that's when we'll get a, a chance to see if there is a real plan B when it comes to policy, not just politics. 
If the bill does fail, will that mean no more military equipment and money for Ukraine from the U.S.? I will say that the White House has been warning that that is indeed a very real possibility, that there is no money left, they're saying, for Ukraine. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell floated the idea of a separate bill that would provide money for Israel and Ukraine. And today at the White House press briefing, um, the press secretary was asked if they would indeed be open to a different bill that just deals with these national security issues. The press secretary did not want to engage on that question yet. But, you know, to be clear, the White House has rejected outright the idea of only funding Israel. Uh, the Republican Speaker of the House proposed a standalone bill for $17.5 billion for Israel, and the White House immediately said Biden would veto that, even though he has, of course, strongly supported Israel's right to defend itself. And Piaras Asma Khalid, thank you. My pleasure. When the U.S. launched airstrikes these last few days in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, the idea was to send a message to another country— Iran. And the message per the White House is rein in your proxy groups, groups that Iran funds, arms or otherwise supports. Now, this prompts a question. Is it clear Iran can do that? How much control does Iran have over the so-called axis of resistance? Well, we are joined now by Norman Rule. He's a 34-year veteran of the CIA and former mission manager for Iran for the director of national intelligence. Norman Rule, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be speaking with you. I want to start there, understanding there is a range, understanding that the Houthis are not Hezbollah, etc. Broadly speaking, how much control does Iran have over its proxies? Broadly speaking, Iran has sufficient control over its proxies to control or modulate their behavior because it controls their weaponry, their funding, and it has significant political relationships with their key leaders. And how do we know that? I mean, when the, when the U.S. contends that Iran is providing money and weapons and intelligence, how do they know? Well, the evidence is significant, and it's even open information. We have literally tons of weapons made in Iran, captured from boats uh, originating in Iran, uh, or weapons that have been fired against U.S. and partner forces with made-in-Tehran uh, nomenclature. These weapons are not available, for the most part, anywhere else in the world. They're not available on an open market. Likewise, Iran's leaders tout their support for all of the militias. There are frequent visits by militia leaders uh, to visit Iran's leaders, and they broadcast these meetings. And last, the militia leaders thank Iran for the, their support. I suppose I should also add that periodically there is um, evidence that an Iranian is present in various militia uh, meetings. What about um, what about money trails? Is there the CIA doing foreign asset tracking, that type thing? The U.S. intelligence community has a robust and generally successful capacity to follow money. But when Iran provides its cash in bags of money delivered via aircraft couriers, that's obviously much more difficult to follow. What's more easily to understand is when significant sanctions are placed on Iran, we are able to uh, determine uh, and proxies uh, complain publicly that their budgets are reduced because of sanctions pressures on Iran. Uh, characterize what kind of control Iran has. Like, does Iran control what and where these groups would target? Well, the control will vary by group and by actor, but I think it's important to begin with an understanding that control is not what Iran seeks. Iran seeks the product of militia actions, not the process of controlling them. And Iran's limited personnel that it applies to this target abroad means that it can't be there day by day. Your, your listeners may want to think of Iran as an arsonist that then sub 
contracts out to other arsonists it believes will be ideologically and energetically pursuing Iran's goals. And then Iran empowers them with money, political support, weaponry, training, and lets them do what they do because their success is Iran's success. Can we make this concrete? Is there an example you can think of where Iran told one of these groups, hey, stop, knock it off, and they they complied? There was reporting that during the uh, U.S. presence in Iraq that warnings by the United States, then Secretary of Defense Panetta, reduced the number of attacks Iran and its personnel were making against U.S. forces uh, in that country. Okay. So at the end of the day, these retaliatory strikes by the U.S., um, you believe they have the potential of, a, of accomplishing the goal that has been laid out of, of getting Iran to rein in its proxies? No. And I don't think that that's something that's reasonable to expect. Uh, the goals of the strikes conducted by the U.S. will certainly degrade proxy capacity. There's no question about that. And that will improve the safety of our personnel in the region. They will, to a limited extent, disrupt proxy activity as proxies leave these areas because they don't want to be caught in the attacks. But none of these strikes touch equities important to the leadership of Iran or proxies themselves. Until that is done, you can't expect to shift proxy behavior. Hmm. And give us a little bit of a ranking. Uh, you know, there's Hezbollah, there's the Houthis, there's Hamas, there's groups in Iraq. Uh, in terms of which are most closely allied with, with Tehran? I'm not sure that's a profitable way of looking at it, simply okay. because Iran has supported Sunni as well as Shia actors, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda. There's no question Iran has enabled their operations, but they would have the loosest relationship with Tehran. Lebanese Hezbollah would be the closest to Tehran as a large structure, but there were certainly some elements of the Iraqi uh, militias, of which there are a number, who would be ideologically of varying degrees associated with uh, Tehran. And of course, the Houthis would be the most distant. But again, for Iran, it's the goal of pressure against the United States, Western uh, partners, and Israel is more important than any specific degree of ideological command and control. And one last question just to focus on Hamas, which is a little bit of an outlier here as a Sunni Muslim group. Iran and these others that we're talking about are, are Shiite. Um, what does that relationship look like with Iran? Well, the relationship has been mixed. For example, uh, during the Arab Spring, when attacks were taking place against uh, Bashar al-Assad, um, the Iranians were quite unhappy with Hamas's refusal to uh, support Assad, and that relationship cooled. Uh, but nonetheless, the relationship uh, returned, and Iran has provided it with millions of dollars, advanced training, training in Iran, and uh, some degree of weaponry. Over the years, Iran has provided this weaponry through Red Sea weapons pipelines and uh, reportedly through training camps in the Sudan, which were shut down some years ago by U.S. diplomacy. CIA veteran Norman Roll, now senior advisor of the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you. You're welcome.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The door that blew off a Boeing 737 MAX last month was likely missing four critical bolts. We'll have the latest from the FAA investigators coming up at 5.50 here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu. Stocks ended on the plus side today. The Dow rose nearly four-tenths of a percent. S&P grew by nearly one-quarter of a percent. And the Nasdaq gained under a tenth of a percent. Boston-based pharmaceutical giant Vertex says its product revenue jumped 11 percent last year, and it expects more growth this year. The company said yesterday it had $9.9 billion in revenue. It credited much of the growth to its drug for cystic fibrosis. Vertex is hoping to get approval soon for another drug for the disease and for a non-opioid painkiller. This is WBUR. The forecast is ahead. WBUR supporters include the Executive Ph.D. program in business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking research skills. Info sessions February 9th and 21st. Send the perfect gift of Winston Flowers to your Valentine and support WBUR. Save 10% for a limited time at WBUR.org. Clouds on the increase through the night, about 30 degrees overnight, not too much lower than where it is right now. Tomorrow, gray skies for the first part of the day, then sunshine taking over for the afternoon. A little bit milder, highs about 40 degrees. The sunshine is back for Thursday. 35 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The atmospheric river that pounded L.A. yesterday shifted south today, pouring on San Diego County overnight before moving east this morning. And another storm system has moved in right behind it, adding to the risk of flooding in some areas. Reporter John Carroll from member station KPBS in San Diego is here. Hi, John. Hi, Ari. Well, I'm imagining you standing outside with an umbrella, even if you're actually in a radio studio. But what are you seeing around San Diego right now? I'm glad I'm not outside. Uh, So far, we are not seeing a repeat of the flooding that we saw back in late January when two and three-quarter inches fell in just six hours. Right now, we're seeing mainly scattered showers and some isolated thunderstorms. The city's transportation department reports around 50 roads closed around San Diego. And at 11.45 our time this morning, the National Weather Service issued a tornado warning for the south-central part of the city, which is very rare. But they've since dropped that and said that no tornado developed. But even though the atmospheric river has passed over San Diego, we're still seeing rain on and off, and that has officials concerned about the possibility of more flooding. As you mentioned, in just a couple of weeks ago in late January, San Diego saw flooding. Uh, how has the city been preparing for this round? Right. That storm was bad. It destroyed homes, prompted rescues. We really got 
caught flat-footed. But this time, Mayor Todd Gloria issued a flood evacuation warning all the way back on Sunday, which means residents in flood-prone areas have been told to be ready to go at a moment's notice. That is still in effect. And there are still dozens of people who were displaced by the last flood who are in temporary shelters. And the city has opened new shelters in case more people have to be evacuated. But since that January storm, the city has also been working around the clock to clear storm channels and flood drainage systems of mud, vegetation, debris that washed out of flooded homes. But the truth is they just don't have the resources to get to all of them. The city has also called in extra firefighters, lifeguards, and dispatch personnel to help should things get really bad again. Well, those are short-term preparations. Longer term, is the city taking steps to prepare for more frequent events like this as climate change makes extreme weather more common? They're doing what they can do. San Diego's storm drainage system is old, and it's not able to keep up with those heavy downpours. Scientists know, of course, that human-caused climate change is making precipitation events more likely. And a new report from the city estimates we've got more than $6 billion worth of infrastructure needs over the next five years, and only about $1.5 billion to tackle the problem. The biggest need is with flood control, but we're also hundreds of millions of dollars short when it comes to other infrastructure needs. When is San Diego expected to get the all-clear for weather this week? Well, the Weather Service says we're going to be seeing scattered showers with occasional heavy downpours through Friday. And, of course, one of the big issues we'll be watching is that rain that's falling now is landing on ground that is absolutely saturated, so there's nowhere for the water to go. Uh, We normally get about two inches for the entire month of January. By the time all is said and done this weekend, the National Weather Service says we may be looking at around three to four inches for both January and this first week of February, several more inches than that in the northern part of the county. But by this weekend, we should be getting back to our typical sunny weather. We'll just have to wait and see how much cleanup and recovery there is to do based on what happens before then. John Carroll of member station KPBS. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. A new book by Maurice Sendak comes out this week. It's a count-along picture book called Ten Little Rabbits. Sendak died in 2012 and did not have any heirs, but his estate is handled by people who were like family to him, as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports. Makes sense that the author of Where the Wild Things Are lived in the woods in the not-too-wild Ridgefield, Connecticut. All right, my rats are here. Oh, nice. The two people in charge of all things Sendak met the author when they were kids. I'm Jonathan Weinberg. I'm the curator at the Maurice Sendak Foundation, and I've known Maurice since I was 10 is when I first met him. His partner, Eugene Glynn, who's a psychiatrist, was my mother's best friend. My mother died when I was quite young, and my father also died, so they were, Maurice and Jean were like surrogate parents. And I'm Lynn Caffanera. I'm the executive director of the Sendak Foundation. I grew up down the street. My parents lived down the road. I met Maurice and Jean when I was 11. When Caponera was 18, she went to live with Sendak and his partner to help around the house. Her apartment was right underneath Sendak's studio. She says he was quite the night owl. I would hear him like all night whistling and playing music and you could hear when you know things were going right, he would be whistling like crazy. So actually whistling while he worked. So Mm -hmm. it was, (laughs) yeah, so it was, uh, it was really wonderful. 
Sendak and his partner Eugene Glynn's main house was built in 1790 with some additions made along the way. Caponera and Weinberg give us a tour. We always like to start in the studio. Sendak's studio is almost exactly as it was when he died, says Caponera. Slippers on the floor, sweater draped over his chair, art supplies on his desk. He used these very just cheap <laughs> paints you would use in kindergarten, really. I mean, they're they're little cake paints and tempera watercolor, uh, tempera poster paints over there. There's all kinds of art everywhere in Sendak's home. 19th century oil paintings and photographs, Winslow Homer engravings, little mechanical toys Sendak made with his brother, and a vast collection of Mickey Mouse memorabilia. Here's a bit of trivia for you. Sendak's very first job was doing window displays for FAO Schwartz. And there are some items from the store in his studio, toy soldiers and a little bird. He said they had sort of a contest with the workers there to see what you could steal from the store. So, you know, so we have these, I'm, they're probably not going to come after us, I hope, but we have these and we have this little bird and, and that's who's he's in Hector Protector. And Maurice was very proud that he said he got a train set out once. <laughs> so besides being a great illustrator, apparently he was a good thief. Mischievous, clever, resourceful, bored, frustrated. Sendak's characters run the gamut. In Ten Little Rabbits, the new counting book, little Mino the magician looks pleased when one, then two, then three rabbits pop out of his hat. At four, he yawns. At six, he's annoyed. By the nine page, exasperated as the rabbits crawl all over him. Maurice has this way of creating these expressions that not only kids get to, but if an adult reading this, you're not going to get bored. Did he know this would be published? Um, well, he didn't know because, you know, he, he kind of left sort of the instructions that, you know, like you'll know what to do, you know, which sort of is open-ended and hopefully, you know, you do know what to do. And, and, and you know, it's sort of a daunting thing to think you're, you're sort of guiding his legacy. Guiding Maurice Sendak's legacy is a big responsibility, but Sendak believed Lynn Caponera could handle it. In 2011, about nine months before he died, he was interviewed on WHYY's Fresh Air. Terry Gross asked him who was helping him. He told her about Lynn. She is a youngish lady who puts up with my oldness that is I'm fighting and struggling against. She puts up with my bad behavior. And she loves me, and I love her. In addition to the counting book, a retrospective of Maurice Sendak's work will travel to Los Angeles in the spring and Denver in the fall. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR in about 10 minutes, a spotlight on the CEO of Steward Healthcare, one of the largest hospital operators in Massachusetts. There are questions about the man who's overseeing the company that's mired in financial trouble. Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, the Supreme Court hears oral arguments on whether Donald Trump can be excluded from the ballot because of his role in the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. Live coverage of arguments begins Thursday at 10 o'clock here at 90.9. WBUR. In sports, the Bruins get back on the ice tonight after the NHL All-Star break. The Bees will host the Calgary Flames. Face-off is at 7 o'clock. 34 degrees now in Boston. It's 530.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Here in California, a rare tornado warning is in effect for inland parts of San Diego County as an atmospheric river stalled over Southern California has already dumped 6 to 12 inches of rain. That's nearly a year's worth on some areas. NPR's Liz Baker has more from Los Angeles. The L.A. Fire Department has responded to more than 300 mudslides so far and successfully rescued someone swept away by the raging L.A. River. Dramatic video online shows a rescuer dangling from a helicopter to pluck the person from coffee-colored rapids. The storm is forecast to ease up in the coming hours. Even so, Ariel Cohen with the National Weather Service says any additional rain, even light rain, is dangerous on such super-saturated ground. It will take very little additional rain to increase already flooded areas with more flooding, landslides, mudslides, and other debris flows. It's been the third wettest two-day stretch for the city since record-keeping started in the 1870s, with still more rain to come. Liz Baker, NPR News, Los Angeles. In Washington, D.C., a diplomatic security officer for the U.S. State Department was arrested today for allegedly taking part in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol three years ago. In Paris, Tom Dreisbach has more. Federal prosecutors allege that Kevin Allstrup joined the pro-Trump mob that breached the U.S. Capitol during the insurrection and remained inside for close to 30 minutes. He can allegedly be seen on surveillance footage taking photos inside the building, but has not been accused of any violence. Court documents state that in his role as a diplomatic security officer for the government, Alstrup provided security for high-ranking officials and locations like embassies. And Alstrup stated on LinkedIn that he had top-secret security clearance. It's unclear if Alstrup still works at the State Department, which did not respond to NPR's request for comment. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston will extend the free fare pilot program on three busy bus routes for another two years. Mayor Michelle Wu said today that routes 23, 28, and 29 will be free for riders until March of 26. Those routes go through Mattapan, Dorchester, and Roxbury. The free fare program was slated to end this month. The mayor says the city will continue to use pandemic relief funds to pay for the buses, which cost $350,000 a month to run. The Medford City Council is being asked to approve a resolution that calls for a ceasefire in the Hamas-Israel war. The resolution also denounces violence committed against civilians by all sides in the conflict. A vote's expected at tonight's meeting. The city councils in Somerville and Cambridge have approved ceasefire resolutions in the past two weeks. Division I basketball players at Dartmouth College qualify as school employees. A leader with the National Labor Relations Board made the ruling yesterday. The decision means the team can become a recognized union, a first for NCAA athletes. Leaders with the Ivy League school can still appeal the decision. And today marks the 46th anniversary of the start of the blizzard of 78. It was a storm that caught a lot of people by surprise, even though it had been forecast. Matthew Belk with the National Weather Service says Boston just got over 27 inches of snow. 
And then as you get out towards Providence, it was their, their number one snowfall of 28.6. And then uh, if you go into even farther north into like northern Worcester County, and they had uh, upwards of three feet in some places. Belk says he has a vivid memory of the blizzard. There was enough snowfall that my father would let me and my sisters jump off the roof of our garage into the snowbanks until my mother caught on, and then that put a, a quick end to that. <laughs> the storm also caused severe coastal flooding and beach erosion across New England. No snow in our forecast, thankfully. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit massgeneralbrighamhealthplan.org. Clouds increase through the night tonight, about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, gray skies for the beginning of the day. Sunshine moving in for the afternoon, a little bit milder. Temperatures about 40 degrees. Sunshine is back for Thursday. 34 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. It appears that any hope of Congress passing a border security deal is fading. Republicans backed away from a bipartisan Senate package that paired border security measures with assistance to Israel and Ukraine. That's amid growing criticism from the right. Joining us now is one of the chief negotiators of that deal, Senator Kirsten Sinema, an independent from Arizona. Senator, welcome. Well, it's great to be with you, Sasha. One of the latest developments in this situation is that today, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, told Republicans or told reporters that Republican support had disappeared for the bill you helped negotiate. Here he is. We had a very robust discussion about whether or not this product could ever become law. And it's been made pretty clear to us uh, by the speaker that it will not become law. This was even though yesterday he was urging his Republican colleagues to support it. What do you think changed? Well, you know, Sasha, it's hard to answer that question because I'm not quite sure what did change. You know, four months ago when my Republican colleagues um, demanded that border security be included in a national security supplemental package, I stood up and joined them and said, yes, I agree. Uh, The border has been an unmitigated crisis in Arizona for most of my life. And We've all seen how devastatingly bad it's been in recent months. Um, and that's why I set around to, to negotiate this package with Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma and Chris Murphy of Connecticut. And to be clear, over the last four months, we have negotiated what the Wall Street Journal now calls the strictest set of migration policies seen in decades. So we came out with a very robust, very major package on Sunday evening and, you know, Something happened between Sunday evening and today uh, when many of my Senate colleagues decided that they actually don't want to secure the border. And, you know, that's their choice. But it's clear um, that folks changed their mind. Well, it is interesting that the Wall Street Journal editorial pages, which tend to be very conservative, were supporting that deal. 
Now, President Biden, of course, is blaming former President Trump for the collapse. Do you agree with that? Well, Sasha, each senator is an individual elected by his or her constituents to represent their state. And each of us are responsible to our state, to our constituents. We each all, as adults, make our own decisions about how we will vote on any given package, any given proposal that comes in front of the Senate. So the responsibility for the decisions of each senator rests solely with each senator. This is our choice. We each get to make this decision. And each person should be held responsible for their own decision. So the real question, Sasha, is, and I, this, will, this question will come up tomorrow, when we vote on this package, senators will get to decide, do you or do you not want to secure the border? And, and you're to, to go back to the question about how much of a role you think Trump played in this, do you think that's kind of the invisible or maybe not so invisible hand here? Well, I think that's a question for those senators who may have changed their minds. You know, four months ago, when uh, when my Republican colleague said, you know, Kirsten, we've got to secure the border, I said, heck yeah, it's my border. It's my state that has been in crisis for all these years. And it does appear that there are some who were more interested in going on television and complaining about the border than actually voting to secure the border. How sincere do you think Republicans or some Republicans were about wanting to reach a deal? I can promise you that Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma was 100 percent, 100 percent sincere. I, I chair the border subcommittee in the United States Senate, and James Lankford is the ranking Republican on that committee. He and I have worked together on this committee for over five years. Several years he was the chair, and for the last three years I've been the chair. We are a team working together. When he and I began working on this package, we were aligned on our goals of what to get done to actually secure the border. There's not another Republican in the Senate who's as knowledgeable or as forthright or as honest a broker as Senator Langford is, particularly on the border. So he was sincere. Others, I can't speak for them. What have these negotiations taught you about what's possible or not possible for a border deal? Well, in this negotiation, as many folks have noticed, for the first time in, in really in my lifetime, we were talking solely about border security. We were not talking about wholesale immigration reform. We did not make any decisions or include anything in our package that changes the status of individuals who have come or who are in our country today. We simply were meeting the crisis of the moment, which is an insecure, broken border that has been exploited by criminal cartels in recent years and has really destroyed our asylum system. So when James and Chris and I set forth to create this package, we wanted to create a system that was workable and that was airtight that ended policies like catch and release, that created disincentives for economic migrants to come into the country unlawfully, and that allowed our government to actually gain operational control of the border. We were able to negotiate that package. It was very difficult, and we did it. What's been disappointing to see today are that the very folks who said that this was so critical and that had to happen are now saying that they would rather not actually address the problem at all. Even though this seems to be falling apart, is there at least some consensus around certain issues or topics, things that everyone, for the most part, seems to agree on? 
Well, to be clear, I thought that we had that consensus on Sunday when we released our package. You know, when we started this conversation, we agreed a couple things. Number one, the asylum system is broken and has been exploited by cartels. It is being used inappropriately by cartels to bring economic migrants into the country whom have no path to citizenship in our country. That is unfair to them and it is unfair to our country. So we agreed on that. We also agreed that we should have an ability to maintain and operationalize control on the border. We do not have that control right now. So we had agreement on those concepts. But Sasha, what it appears to be clear is that we don't have agreement on what I think is the most fundamental question, which is, do you actually want to solve the problem? Of course, there were some Republicans saying it's not a good bill. It's very flawed. Did you consider it imperfect, but this being a case of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good? Did you feel it was good enough? I have never once in my career voted on a perfect piece of legislation. No such thing exists. Every time you negotiate a bipartisan agreement, you give and you get and you come to a compromise. That is the nature of passing legislation. But what I can tell you, Sasha, over the years that I have negotiated many, many, many major bipartisan packages is this. When you have a shared commitment to get to your end result and you're willing to compromise and work hand in hand together to solve the problem, you can do it. It is if everyone actually wants that goal, that is how you get there. Briefly, if this deal didn't work, do you know what it would take to get a workable deal? You know, I'm not sure I can answer that question for you. That question is probably better asked to the individuals who said they wanted a deal and then don't actually want one. That is Senator Kirsten Sinema, an independent representing Arizona. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. Steward Healthcare is said to be negotiating a potential financial lifeline for its nine Massachusetts hospitals. And now there are questions being raised about the company's CEO. Ralph Delatore oversaw the deal that created Steward with backing from private equity. As WBR's Deborah Becker reports, many Massachusetts healthcare leaders blame the company's problems on greed and some are taking particular aim at Dilatore, including those who helped propel his career. A decade ago, Dr. Ralph Dilatore was considered an ambitious, sometimes brash, healthcare leader who helped save the struggling Caritas Christi Health System. When he took the helm of Caritas in 2008, Dilatore promised a new model of care, especially for vulnerable patients. Here he is at a 2014 fundraiser explaining what he was offering patients. To make sure that we provide not just health care, but really good health care in their community. Not just where they can afford it, but where they can access it. And that's really what it's all about. That fundraiser was billed as a roast of Ralph, with prominent Massachusetts leaders joking about Delatory's ambition and strong personality. Then Massachusetts Blue Cross Blue Shield CEO Andrew Dreyfus joked that by 2024, Delatory would probably be in charge of much of the state's health care industry. I'd like to propose that we all toast Ralph Delatore, a visionary, 
a leader, and soon, no doubt, my boss. Philanthropist and advertising executive Jack Connors quipped that praise from Delatore was almost an accomplishment. If he were to pat you on the back, you were listed on your resume. Connors is credited with helping put Delatore on the path to become a healthcare magnate. Connors introduced Delatore to those looking for the next Caritas leader. While running Caritas, Delatore made a deal with a private equity firm that created Stewart. The company is now the nation's largest physician led hospital operator. Along the way, Connors says Delatore changed. Ralph decided that his first priority was to make himself wealthy. I know I'm being recorded, by the way. Connors describes Delatore as brilliant and an innovator. He was proud that Delatore kept the Caritas hospitals running, but Connors is troubled by Delatore's reputation for ostentatious symbols of wealth, such as acquiring a $40 million yacht while running hospitals for vulnerable patients. I'm not opposed to people taking care of themselves, but he forgot to take care of the hospitals and the patients. Delatore's career started as a doctor. An alum of Harvard and MIT, his work as a cardiac surgeon was widely admired. Dr. Frank Selke, now at Brown University Medical School, worked with Delatore at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Selke says Delatore could be difficult. He's a very talented individual, very smart. Maybe he's a bit on the aggressive side, and, you know, he he doesn't take any prisoners in uh, how he deals with things. And observers say Delatore skillfully navigated business and political spheres, once hosting then-President Barack Obama at his Newton home for a fundraiser. Dreyfus, the former Blue Cross Blue Shield executive, says Delatore was a tough negotiator who deserves credit for saving some hospitals. I worked with him fairly closely, and he always struck me as someone who was deeply committed to his organization, to the community. And I think now we just have to say, well, we still have these important community resources out there, these important hospitals, and how can we stabilize them? But some say Stewart's actions over the years haven't been compatible with community health care. They point to the company's partnership with private equity and the sale of its hospital real estate as examples of putting patients at risk. As for Jack Connors, he thinks he made a mistake by helping open doors for Delatory in Massachusetts. This is a place where People come from around the world to learn how to help other people. And that's what I thought Ralph wanted to do. And I was mistaken. I'm kind of sick about it. Connor says he's confident state officials will come up with a way to minimize the impact of Stewart's financial straits. The company declined to make Delatory available for an interview. Stewart has blamed its financial problems largely on low reimbursement rates for publicly insured patients. Last week, the company said it's arranged a financial deal that will keep its Massachusetts hospitals open for now while it considers a potential transfer of ownership. For 90.9 WBUR... I'm Deborah Becker. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers. Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com and Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. 
Coming up in about 15 minutes, no immunity for Donald Trump, who a federal appeals court says can be prosecuted for alleged crimes he committed during his presidency to reverse the 2020 election results. That story again in about 15 minutes on WBUR. Some clouds around tonight, temperatures about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, cloudy early, some sunshine by the afternoon, temperatures around 40. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Four key bolts were missing when a door plug blew off a Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet in midair last month. That's one of the findings of a preliminary investigation from the National Transportation Safety Board that was released today. Those bolts were removed after some repair work at Boeing's factory in Washington. The report stops short of saying who is responsible for failing to reinstall the missing bolts. NPR's Joel Rose is following the investigation. Hi, Joel. Hey, Ari. Well, what else is new in this report? Well, as you say, this confirms that the the bolts were missing when the plane left Boeing's factory. They were supposed to secure the door plug that later blew off of an Alaska Airlines flight in midair shortly after the plane took off from Portland, Oregon last month. And this is not a total surprise. It's been widely reported after it was first suggested a few weeks ago in an online post by an anonymous whistleblower who claims to be a Boeing insider. That whistleblower's account has now largely been confirmed by the NTSB, including some other key details of how this happened. How does a mistake like that happen? Can you walk us through it? Sure. The NTSB confirms that the door plug was installed by a major Boeing supplier, Spirit Aerosystems, which makes the fuselage for the Boeing 737 at its factory in Wichita, Kansas. That fuselage was delivered to Boeing's factory in Washington by rail around the end of August last year. And then Boeing discovered problems with some rivets on the fuselage near the door plug. The NTSB says the door plug was opened so that employees of Spirit at the Boeing factory could replace the damaged rivets. Then the door plug was closed back up. The NTSB says the bolts were not reinstalled after that work, according to photo evidence provided by Boeing. There are still a number of things we just don't know, including exactly who opened and reclosed the door plug and what authorization they did or maybe did not have to do it. The NTSB says that part of the investigation continues. And this report comes just hours after the head of the Federal Aviation Administration testified on Capitol Hill. What did he say? Yeah, FAA Administrator Michael Whitaker testified in the morning before the release of this report. But still, he got a lot of questions about this incident from lawmakers on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And here's some of what Whitaker said. The events of January 5th, it it really created two issues for us. One, what's wrong with this airplane? But two, what's going on with the production uh, at Boeing? And there have been issues in the past and they don't seem to be getting resolved. So we feel like we need to have a heightened level of oversight to really get after that. 
Whitaker says the FAA is very confident it has figured out what was wrong with the 737 MAX 9, but it is not so sure about Boeing's production lines. The FAA has dispatched about 20 inspectors to Boeing's factory in Washington and another six to Spirit's factory in Kansas. Um, they may have to keep some inspectors there permanently, Whitaker said, although no final decision yet on how many. The FAA has already taken the unprecedented step of ordering Boeing to hold production of the 737 at its current level, 38 jets per month. The agency says Boeing cannot increase production until the FAA is satisfied that quality control is up to its standards. Has there been any response from Boeing and Spirit? Both companies said they're reviewing the report. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun said in a statement, quote, whatever final conclusions are reached, Boeing is accountable for what happened, unquote. Calhoun said an event like this must not happen on an airplane that leaves our factory. Remember, Boeing was still working to rebuild public trust after the crashes of two 737 MAX 8 jets in 2018 and 2019 that killed 346 people. This incident has touched off another crisis for Boeing and now for one of its top suppliers as well. The NTSB investigation will continue, uh, though it could be a year or more before we get its final report. That's NPR transportation correspondent Joel Rose. Thank you. You're welcome. Senegal is seen as one of the most stable democracies in West Africa, a part of the continent that frequently sees coups and political unrest. That stability was shaken this weekend when the country's president announced a delay in this month's elections. That delay was ratified in parliament last night amid scenes of chaos. Ayen Dangbior reports from Dakar. This is what it sounds like when the rule of law is challenged. Chaotic scene in Senegal's National Assembly last night. Security officers in bulletproof jackets and helmets marched into the National Assembly and removed opposition members of parliament, preventing them from casting a vote that would postpone the presidential elections. It all started unraveling days before with a surprise address to the nation from President Macky Sall. The elections, which were due to take place on February 25th, are postponed indefinitely, he told the country. Saul blamed the decision on discrepancies in the final candidate list and corruption, claiming he wanted to engage in a national dialogue to create conditions for a free and fair election. But that's not how the street reacted. Hundreds of people clashed with police over the weekend, furious with Saul's decision. Heavily militarized police fired tear gas into the crowds. By Monday, the government had shut down the cellular data in some parts of the country and closed a private TV station. Dozens of police in riot gear were stationed around the capital, with a large concentration outside the National Assembly. None of this unrest has come out of the blue. In the past two years, there have been a growing number of violent protests, a culmination of the increasing political tensions within the country, with some political parties claiming the president was actively trying to exclude their leaders from the election. Taxi driver Pape Sen speaks for many Senegalese by expressing his shock. It's the first time that elections have been postponed, he says. To decide like this overnight can only lead to confusion. This crisis is not just a political crisis, it's a constitutional crisis. Ibrahim Khan is a political analyst based in Dakar. Today, I can't tell you that we are under rule of law. I can't tell you because 
all the laws that we have, they are interpreted by the current government in the way that they want. For now, Dakar appears to be returning to normal. Buses hum along the Corniche by the sea, and pedestrians are hustling onto their next destination. But underneath all this, the tensions remain. Cellular service is still turned off, and there's a heavy police presence in many of the neighborhoods here in the capital. This once quiet corner of West Africa is bracing for the next signs of chaos. For NPR News, I'm Ayen Dangbior in Dakar. The Mardi Gras king cake. It's colorful, cinnamony, and sweet. But how do you know if you've got a good one? We'll head out to bakeries across New Orleans to check out all sorts of king cakes and find out where they stand in the rankings. Listen to our show tomorrow, either by turning on your radio or asking your smart speaker to play your member station. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From Mathnasium, who believes that every kid can be a math kid. Mathnasium offers customized math instruction intended to challenge advanced kids and help struggling kids get better. Learn more at mathnasium.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, Donald Trump loses a landmark legal bid. A federal appeals court rules unanimously that the former president is not entitled to immunity from prosecution for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump is expected to continue to appeal to the Supreme Court. It's Tuesday, February 6th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a jury returns a verdict in the involuntary manslaughter trial of the mother of a Michigan teenager who shot and killed fellow students at his high school in 2021. On count one of involuntary manslaughter, we find the defendant guilty. Jennifer Crumbly could face up to 15 years in prison. And country music star Toby Keith, who dominated the charts in the 1990s and 2000s, has died after a two-year battle with stomach cancer. He was 62 years old. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Democratic and Republican Party voters in Nevada heading to the polls today to vote in that state's primary. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports many were already looking to November. There are few surprises expected out of this week's nominating contest in Nevada. At a polling place in the Las Vegas suburb of Henderson, many voters said they were already anticipating a rematch between President Biden and former President Donald Trump in the general election. Valerie Komet said she voted for Biden today, partly out of concern that Trump may return to office. He's promised to pretty much take away our liberties. So, I, you know, people say something, you should probably believe them. Trump is expected to sweep the state's 26 delegates in the Republican caucuses, while President Biden is expected to handily win the Democratic primary. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Henderson, Nevada. A federal appeals court has ruled former President Trump is not immune from prosecution for actions taken while he was in the White House. Three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit ruling that Trump can face charges of plotting to overturn the results of the 2020 election and for his actions related to the 2021 Capitol riot. Dr. Michelle Goodwin is a professor of constitutional law at Georgetown University and explains what could happen next. Potentially, this is an issue that might be heard by the full in uh, bank D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, or it may be a matter that goes up before the United States Supreme Court without even that. Uh, it could be an issue that the Supreme Court decides not to take up. Certainly, there would be an interest amongst the uh, legal team, Trump's legal team, to get this case before the United States Supreme Court. Trump had been set to go on trial next month, but that was postponed. The Supreme Court, meanwhile, is expected to hear a separate case, whether Trump should stay on the ballot in Colorado this week. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has requested Secret Service protection, according to a campaign spokeswoman. Morph NPR's Sarah McCammon. Haley's campaign says the request for Secret Service protection comes partly in response to increased threats. Also, Haley's South Carolina home has been targeted by at least one so-called swatting attack when people make false reports to law enforcement with the intent of provoking an emergency police response. The former South Carolina governor recently told NBC's Meet the Press that one incident took place while she was away, but her elderly parents were there. The last thing you want is to see multiple law enforcement officials with guns drawn pointing at my parents and and thinking that something happened. Haley has been campaigning in her home state ahead of South Carolina's Republican primary on February 24th. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 141 points, or just over a third of a percent. The Nasdaq rose 11 points. The S&P 500 gained 11 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Dozens of drivers for apps, including Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, were at the Statehouse today. They support a bill to allow them to unionize. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports they're also backing a ballot question that would put the issue directly to voters in November. Drivers in blue T-shirts walked the marble halls of the State House Tuesday, handing out information packets to state legislators. Christian Florian is a Lyft driver from East Boston. He says companies like Lyft and Uber are taking a growing cut of the money that used to go to drivers. Florian hopes a union would boost his pay and help him work more regular hours. A political action group supported by Uber and Lyft says the bill would restrict drivers' flexibility and independence. Lawmakers have until tomorrow to report the bill out of committee. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 
More restaurants in Boston's North End will not be able to take part in the upcoming outdoor dining season. That season runs May 1st through the end of October. WBR's Fausto Menard has more. In most city neighborhoods, restaurants with enough outdoor space will be allowed to set up tables on adjacent sidewalks and streets, but not in the North End. City Councilor Gabriella Coletta represents the neighborhood, which she says has very unique infrastructure challenges. It's one square mile. We have very small sidewalks, very small streets, and this can't really easily accommodate outdoor dining. Some exceptions could be made for restaurants with enough sidewalk space. The city is also working to craft neighborhood-specific guidelines, such as weekend-only on-street dining, that could allow more neighborhood restaurants to offer El Fresco dining in the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. State officials say new cases of bird flu have been detected in Essex County. The Department of Agricultural Resources said today a group of different species of birds died and tested positive for the flu. The department said it also conducted bird flu tests on dead Canada geese found in the county. The disease can spread among birds quickly. It's often deadly, but it rarely affects humans. In the forecast, clouds increase through the night tonight, about 30 degrees for low. Tomorrow, gray skies for the start of the day, sunshine later on, a little bit milder, temperatures about 40 degrees. Sun's back for Thursday could, by the way, reach about 50 degrees by the weekend. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Coming up, we remember country star Toby Keith. The singer died yesterday in his home state of Oklahoma. That's in a few minutes. First, a federal appeals court has ruled that former President Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The unanimous ruling marks a major victory for special counsel Jack Smith. And NPR justice correspondent Kerry Johnson is here to talk about the case. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. What did the three judges on the D.C. Circuit panel say in their ruling today? They say Trump does not enjoy absolute immunity from federal prosecution. And for the purposes of this criminal case, they wrote former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant. The court said it would be a striking paradox if the president who has a special constitutional duty to make sure that the laws are executed faithfully were the only person capable of defying those laws with impunity. And the judges wrote, we can't accept the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. They said they said that would collapse the system of the separation of powers. That is strong language in a unanimous opinion. And it's the first time an appeals court has been asked to weigh in on a claim of absolute immunity by a former president. What else stands out to you in the ruling? These judges pretty soundly rejected all of Donald Trump's claims. They talked about an overriding interest in accountability outweighing his claims about baseless prosecutions and lawsuits. And they wrote former President Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power despite losing the 2020 election were, if proven, an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. The court said really the most fundamental check on executive power belongs to voters and Trump should not be uh, able to violate their will. They also wrote the prospect of criminal liability might help, help keep future presidents in line. 
Just for context, there are so many cases involving Trump right now. Remind us how we got to this one, this opinion today. Yeah, in this case, in D.C., Trump faces four federal charges for attempting to stay in office after he lost the 2020 election to Joe Biden. Prosecutors say those steps culminated in violence at the Capitol three years ago that injured 140 police officers. Trump has pleaded not guilty to those charges. And his lawyers argued before the appeals court last month that Trump deserved broad immunity because his actions were official ones. He took as president, and he was simply raising questions about the integrity of the election. But prosecutors said Trump's legal arguments would actually undermine democracy and give presidents a license to commit crimes while in the White House. Today's ruling is not the end of the story. What happens next? Trump has until Monday to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he would need a majority of the nine justices to pause or stay the case at this stage. If the Supreme Court refuses to pause the case, it's going to pretty quickly return to Judge Tanya Chutkin. She recently wiped away the March 4th trial date, but we know she wants to move very quickly without additional appeals or delays. This case could go to trial in late, late spring or summer. And once again, Trump's legal problem Problems could be running up against the political calendar. How do these two align? You know, Trump is the front runner for the Republican nomination and the national convention is set for July. We also have a new data point from a poll to be released tomorrow by NPR, PBS NewsHour and Marist. Two thirds of the people polled say Trump should not have immunity for actions taken while president. But nearly three quarters of Republicans say he should have immunity. Hmm. Any response from the former president today? Trump has promised to appeal. His campaign spokesman says without complete immunity, a president would not be able to properly function. And other presidents who leave office are going to be indicted immediately, he says, by the opposing party. Trump also sent out a fundraising pitch shortly after the appeals court ruling, calling it a witch hunt, which we've heard so many times before from him. Is this decision likely to affect the other cases uh, prosecuting him? It's not clear if this D.C. trial over the 2020 election will remain first in line or whether cases in New York, uh, a case in New York might uh, leapfrog. We've also got that prosecution in Florida over classified documents and the Fulton County, Georgia case, which is uh, kind of mucked up now in how to handle some motions to disqualify the prosecutor. NPR's Carrie Johnson, thanks for your reporting. My pleasure. In a Michigan courtroom today, a jury foreman announced a verdict in a trial of a mother charged with involuntary manslaughter as a result of the murderous actions of her son. On count one of involuntary manslaughter, as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. The jury found that Jennifer Crumbly was criminally responsible for her son killing four students and wounding seven other people at Oxford High School in November 2021. Crumbly and her husband James were each charged with involuntary manslaughter and are being tried separately. Quinn Kleinfelter with member station WDET is following the case and is with us. Hi, Quinn. Hello. Quinn, as you know, there are experts saying that this case sets a precedent. It holds a parent legally responsible for the criminal actions of their child. Given that, what was it like in the courtroom and what was the reaction of Jennifer Crumbly when the verdict was announced? Well, it was a pretty packed courtroom. Family members of the victims were there. There didn't seem to be anybody on hand for Jennifer Crumbly, just as there hasn't been throughout the trial. When she came in, she didn't show much emotion, although she and her attorney did seem a bit tense. They kept putting on chapstick. Uh, she kept her head down. It was different for the family members. They shook hands and hugged the prosecutors when the verdict came. This was a shooting that occurred when Crumbly's son, Ethan, was 15. He's since been sentenced to life in prison. Prosecutors had argued that Jennifer Crumbly ignored her son's mental health. What evidence did they present for that? 
Well, prosecutors used texts, Facebook messages, and journal entries that said Crumbly's son was hallucinating, uh, seeing things flying in their home, and that his parents were ignoring any pleas to see a doctor. The defense claimed that Jennifer Crumbly never saw those messages. But throughout the trial, the prosecution painted Crumbly as somebody who was more interested in her horses or her own affairs than how her son was doing. And prosecutor Karen McDonald said Crumbly's own testimony underlined her point when she said her son's actions had ruined so many lives, including her own. And she was asked the question, you lost everything. She said yes. She hasn't lost everything, ladies and gentlemen. Her son is still alive. Quinn, prosecutors presented several witnesses, but the defense presented just one, Jennifer Crumbly, who testified on her own behalf. Was that a surprise that she was the only defense witness, and what did she have to say? It was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, she said she had no idea her son was as troubled as he was, that she did not take him home from school the day of the shooting because counselors there assured her that he was not an immediate threat to anyone. And her attorney, Shannon Smith, argued uh, the prosecution was wrong when it claimed Crumbly did not keep a gun securely locked away from her son, a gun the parents had bought him just days before the shooting as an early Christmas present. No parent would purchase a weapon if they believed their child had mental illnesses. Why are the parents being tried separately? Because they requested it. Their attorneys said some new evidence had come up that could pit the parents against each other, evidence that apparently involves who was responsible for keeping the gun secure and away from their son. In fact, this verdict could have big implications for the husband, James Crumbly's trial. His trial is set for next month. He faces identical charges. Jennifer Crumbly's sentencing is set for April 9th. What kind of sentence could she get? Involuntary manslaughter carries a penalty of as much as 15 years in prison. That is WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter. Thank you. You're welcome. Country music star Toby Keith has died at 62 years old. The singer announced in 2022 that he was undergoing treatment for stomach cancer. NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento has this remembrance. Toby Keith fell in love with music while working at his grandmother's Arkansas Supper Club, where he'd sometimes join bands on stage. After years of playing in a group called Easy Money Band in the 1980s, Keith's solo debut single, Should Have Been a Cowboy, put him on the map in 1993. In a video he recently shared on X, Keith recounted how the song came to him while watching one of his hunting buddies try to win over a girl at a bar. His name was John, and he jumped up his hunting clothes and ran over to grab this cowgirl to dance. She turned him down, and on the way back to the table, we were laughing at some one of the guys saw her. John, you should have been a cowboy. So I thought, I'm going to write that. I might have had a sidekick with a funny name Running wild through the hills chasing Jesse James the song climbed to number one on the country charts. Throughout the next two decades, Keith had a slew of hits, including Beer for My Horses, a duet with Willie Nelson. We'll raise up our glasses against evil forces, singing whiskey for my men, beer for my horses. And American Soldier. I'm an American soldier, an American. Pop Culture Happy Hour host Stephen Thompson says, Keith's influence in country music over the last three decades has left an immeasurable mark on the genre. He made music with an eye toward the hugest possible audience, and I think he expressed sentiments with an eye toward the universal. Into the 2000s, Keith's songs became more political. His 2002 hit, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, responded to the 9-11 attacks. Hey, Uncle Sam, put your name. 
top of his list and a statue and stoked a feud with the then Dixie Chicks about the invasion of Iraq. Stephen Thompson again. He got more politically outspoken, and still his own politics weren't always that easy to pin down. In 2015, Keith was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He continued to perform even while in treatment for stomach cancer. Toby Keith died in his home state of Oklahoma. He's survived by his wife, three children, and four grandchildren. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News. I won't leave it so Can't leave it up to him He's knocking on my door And I knew all of my life That someday it would end Get up and go outside is weathered and warm. Ask yourself how would you be if you didn't know the day you were born. Try to love You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in business news this evening, it's pretty common for homeowners to get a letter in the mail saying their mortgage has been sold to a new lender. But why does that happen so often? If every mortgage were held on a bank balance sheet, that would not leave banks with a lot of space to finance other types of loans. Why mortgages change hands coming up in business news, which starts in about 10 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at theumbrellaarts.org. Flowers on Valentine's Day, or flowers every month beginning on Valentine's Day. Choose the perfect gift and support WBUR at WBUR.org. Stocks ended on the plus side today. The Dow rose nearly four-tenths of a percent. S&P grew by nearly a quarter of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained under a tenth of a percent. Two ambulance companies in North Dartmouth will pay $1.6 million to settle allegations over false billing. The state attorney general's office said today the deal is with Stat Ambulance, South Coast Emergency Medical Services, and their owner. They were accused of submitting false claims to MassHealth and Medicare dating back to 2015. The companies will also undergo independent monitoring. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. 33 degrees in Boston now should fall just to 30 overnight tonight. Tomorrow getting up to 40 degrees. Morning clouds, then afternoon sunshine and more sunshines ahead for Thursday. A slow climb in temperatures through the week, close to 50 on Friday, maybe into the 50s over the weekend. Again, 33 now in Boston at 621. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you are interested in getting no sleep whatsoever tonight, have I got a book for you. The opening sentence of Night Watching by Tracy Sierra reads, There was someone in the house. And the tale that unfolds from there pretty much guarantees you will stay up, as I did, way past bedtime, tearing through pages to find out what happens, or you'll be too petrified to sleep, or maybe both. Tracy Sierra, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. I'm so excited. Um, I want you to set the scene. Just describe for us what is happening as that first sentence of the novel uh, plays out. There was someone in the house. This is There's a woman. She's home alone with her young children. And then? Yes, that's right. Um, woman is home alone at night with her young kids, and she sees a figure coming up her stairs and um, has all that fear we all do when you hear a bump in the night, hopes it's not real, but it is all too real. And it is up to her to find a way to protect her little family and um, figure out exactly what to do as it becomes increasingly clear that this is no ordinary home invasion. I mean, just hearing you describe seeing this figure coming up the stairs, it sends chills through me. I saw where you have described that situation as a as a primal as a universal fear you know the idea of an intruder in your home who wants to harm you and people you love um it's my worst nightmare is it yours certainly i mean i think that is the basis for the whole book is my own sort of fear and anxiety and um wanting to kind of poke at that idea i think scary stories can be remarkably cathartic and they certainly are for me when telling them yeah you never name the woman, your protagonist, your heroine. And I wondered, is that intentional? Are you signaling this could be any of us? Like, this could be you? I did that for kind of, of two reasons. Um, it adds to the unsettling nature, I think. It kind of makes you question who each of these people are, how you define someone at all, while also being oddly easier to step into their shoes. She doesn't, the, the mother doesn't have any great choices when this man who's not supposed to be in her house is in her house in the middle of the night. She does have the very basic one. Do you run? Do you hide? Do you stay and try to fight? Tell us a little bit more about her. Like, what do we need to know about her to understand why she makes the choice she does? I think she is about as far from an action hero as you can get in many ways. Um, she knows immediately uh, that fighting in any sort of physical way, she's going to lose. That is off the table. And the uh, story takes place during a um, blizzard. And the idea of being able to somehow escape out of the house when, you know, you have small children and there's snow on the ground, very difficult. And I think one thing that she's dismayed in herself is that her first reaction is kind of to freeze um, and how you deal with your own sort of physical response to fear is I think a really interesting thing and kind of different in every different emergency situation so 
yet she has to figure out how to hide because that's really the only option left to her. And tell us where she hides. So the the setting of the house is based on my own 300-year-old home here in New England. And um, like a lot of antique homes, actually, and there are a lot of them in New England, there are secret spaces in the house. Um, We certainly have some in ours. And we also have, just like the um, house in the novel, a secret room behind uh, the fireplace. And so she takes refuge in that secret room, which, you know, is uh, not exactly a hospitable place. <laughs> it's tiny, it's dusty, it's cramped, yeah, it's, yeah. Right, it is. But in a way, her smallness and, and the size of her children becomes a strength in that way, kind of paradoxically. Um, you know, she can't fight, but she is certainly able to hide a little easier than she might be if she were larger. And you said this is, you have a room like this in your own house in New England? Yes, yes, we do. We do. There's all kinds of really interesting and fun, you know, little secret spaces. We have sort of hidey holes under floorboards and the like. And um, when we were looking at houses, I I know we're not alone in this because we saw other old homes with very similar things and all kinds of theories about the secret room. Um, And I kind of poke at that a little bit in the in the book as well the way that um people are kind of fascinated by that and just sort of love spinning stories around it and is that part of what inspired this whole story is you looking at your own secret room in your own house and thinking why would you go in there like why would you build it what would you use it for oh absolutely um you know much like the the husband and wife in the novel my husband and I cleaned out that space and kind of theorizing and everyone we've had work in the house has has their own theory you know the the family we bought the home from the the kids were convinced it was haunted these these old spaces kind of accumulate theories and and legends and it's really interesting because you'll never know the truth for for sure um or or how it was used in the past right and i think that's just a really sort of fun and interesting thing about um old homes and secret spaces while we're on the subject of the house it's it is a very old centuries old house in new england in the novel it's almost a character in its own right it's got so much personality and it's making all these noises that are that are informing the action tell us a little more about that sure i think um any parent of small children becomes very aware of every little creak and echo in their house because you're putting a you know a baby down to sleep. You're in big trouble if that door creaks and wakes them up. Oh yeah. And certainly in our house, uh, I learned where to walk, where not to, what squeaks, what doesn't. And um, I wrote the the novel uh, much of it during uh, COVID lockdowns and. It was at this time where obviously our, our homes were a refuge, but also extremely confining. And it got me thinking a lot about sort of the traditional role of home for women as sort of the, the sphere, but also, again, confining and how I really wanted to sort of turn that sort of knowledge of this creaky house into an asset for her, right? She knows this space. She knows where this man is in the house because she can hear him. She knows that noise of that floorboard, the creak of that wardrobe, all those sort of 
characteristic things that that you learn <laughs> as a parent and just living in a place. Have you ever had occasion to use your secret room? No, we have not. We have not. And I hope I never need to <laughs> for this, Me too. this reason, for sure. <laughs> Tracy Sierra, thank you. Thank you so much. Her debut novel is titled Night Watching. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed for Israel tomorrow to pursue a ceasefire deal between Israel and Hamas. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, the latest on negotiations, also the results from the Nevada primary. Start your day here tomorrow. Boston Bruins get back on the ice tonight after the NHL All-Star break. The Bruins will host the Calgary Flames. Face-off time is 7 o'clock. Lots of clouds overnight tonight, about 30 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, clouds early. Sunshine for the bulk of the day should reach 40 degrees. 33 degrees now in Boston. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov.